Welcome to the Why They Are So Angry podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Carol Francois, a proud baby boomer with over 30 years experience as an educator and learning leader. And I'm Courtney Square, your resident first generation millennial. Join us as we present an unvarnished look at systemic racism in America throughout history and up to modern times. We invite you to pull up a chair, put in your earbuds, and allow us to enlighten, educate, and explore the real reasons why Black African Americans are so angry. Because until you know the whole history, it isn't American history at all. Hey, Courtney. We're recording today's episode during the Love Month, February. So we should take a look at love, romance, and marriage to see if there's anything to explore related to our focus on systemic racism in American institutions. So let's start with a general statistic that applies to all people in America to kick things off. Overall, the national marriage rate fell from 6.9 to 6.5 marriages per 1,000 people from 2017 to 2018. Now, the dip was the first noticeable change in a fairly stable trend over the past decade. As recently as 2001, the national rate was 8.2 marriages per 1,000 people. Well, I think a lot of people are looking at marriage a lot differently these days, Aunt Carol, especially if they grew up in single parent homes or are children of divorce. Well, that, that very well may be the case, Courtney. Maybe this statistic might be another reason. Almost 50% of all marriages in the United States will end in divorce or separation. Researchers estimate that 41% of all first marriages end in divorce. Well, as a newlywed, I can certainly admit that marriage is a new adventure, and as so many people may not want to realize, divorce is a reality of both new and old marriages. But how do those statistics affect Black African Americans and their marriage? Well, Courtney, there has been a barrage of news reports about the Black marriage rate that give the impression that African American women's uh, chances of walking down the aisle are pretty bleak. A Yale University study found that just 42% of Black women are married, and a variety of high-profile news networks, such as CNN and ABC, picked up that figure, and they just ran with it. But researchers Ivory A. Tolson of Howard University and Bryant Marks of Morehouse College questioned the accuracy of this finding. Now, although that percentage sounds bleak, later on in the episode, I'm going to share some more positive results and stats based on the research of Tolson and Brian Marks. I hope so, because that is kind of a bleak outlook. Yes, it does sound a little bleak. But, um, you know, we always like to take a look at history. So let's go through the history of love, romance and marriage among Black African-Americans down through the ages. Now, in the colonial era, when slave owners denied Blacks the right to marry, divided families, and in many cases raped enslaved women and girls, things didn't look so great for Black love. And if you remember, you and our listeners remember from the Christmas episode, some slave owners did allow slaves to marry around the holidays, but since the slaves were property, these marriages, despite how 
despite how devoted the couples were, they were in full control of the slave owner. And slave marriages often weren't legally recognized and with tragic consequences, as you can imagine. Families could be separated at the whim of their owners. And in the antebellum uh, United States, jumping the broom uh, as it was called, was a ceremony where slaves were forced to marry one another, according to a scholar, Alan Dundee's. Now, instead of an ordained minister legally conducting a wedding, there are accounts of slave owners going and grabbing a broom and having two slaves jump over it before they were considered married. Now, one thing that is kind of like our modern day weddings that slaves did do, they did exchange their version of vows. They are different than the ones we use today. And I'll explain a little bit about those later on in the podcast. Well, I can't wait to hear that. Now, later on during Reconstruction and the ensuing decades, violence split up couples again as millions of them embarked on the Great Migration North. Now, often when they got there, and found themselves having to take welfare, the welfare system mandated that women remain single in order to receive government support. And sadly, no institution has forbidden Black love as effectively as the prison industrial complex. It removes Black men en masse from the pool of marriageable partners. Wow, and Carol, what you just shared might be the reason why some people believe the narrative that Black love doesn't exist or that Black African Americans don't even want to get married. Yes, yes, that might be the reason. It's sad. But uh, in spite of these obstacles, Black African Americans have always found a way to have loving relationships and family structures that are healthy and nurturing. And I believe you have some stories about how formerly enslaved people show resilience to find spices and reconnect with loved ones despite the ravages of slavery. I do. Now, I have two stories for this episode, and they both show the fragility and strength of Black love during and after slavery. Now, despite Despite being slaves and being considered property, as we already stated, that didn't mean they did not, slaves did not try to form family bonds, even with the knowledge that those bonds could be ripped apart, which is why I spoke earlier about slave wedding vows. They had to be altered to say, do you take this woman or this man to be your spouse until death or distance part you. Marriage was a leap of faith, but one worth taking. In spite of a system where white slave holders held every aspect of the enslaved African-American couple's lives in their hands. They determined when and where enslaved people could wed. They split them apart when the slaveholders' finances required them to do so. They often chose who could marry and who could or could not marry or brazenly violate couples' marriages by forcing the women to serve as concubines. Yet and still, enslaved couples took the risk of forming that human bond driven by passion and love and the need to soften the blow of the utter evil inflicted on them by chattel slavery. Oh, the strength of the heart, the strength of love. The heart wants what the heart wants. Mm -hmm. So for the first story I'm going to share, it involves somewhat of a well-known figure in the abolitionist movement, a gentleman by the name of Henry Box Brown, who literally mailed himself to freedom in 1849 in a custom-made dry goods box. Brown squeezed his six-foot, 200 
pound frame inside the box, holding himself in the fetal position for a harrowing 27 hour train ride from Richmond, Virginia to Philadelphia, PA, where he was met by abolitionists. My goodness, I don't even like sitting on a plane for three or four hours. I can't imagine what that was like. Me neither. Now, although the story was spread far and wide and he was able to share that during the time of the abolitionist movement, it was a broken heart and lost love that caused Henry to take this risk. So it really wasn't him just trying to escape to freedom. It had to do with his having a broken heart. Yes. Let me explain a little bit about how his heart got broken. Now, Henry had seen and felt the horrors of the splitting up of his own family as a young boy after his siblings were sold as an inheritance to the children of his deceased enslaver. And then he was sold away from his own parents to work in a tobacco factory. Now, in spite of this heartbreak, Henry fell in love with a young slave by the name of Nancy, and she was the love of his life. But they had only been married a year before Nancy had been sold, not once, but twice. Hmm. Now, eventually, over a three-year period, Nancy and Henry had found a way, because he had always been close, to have three children together, but still separately enslaved. And then Nancy found herself in the hands of a very unscrupulous enslaver. Now, he offered Henry a deal. If he would pay a portion of Nancy's sale price, then the man would keep her nearby and sell her back to Henry Brown once he had saved enough money. Now, this was a risk, but Henry was willing to take it. He was desperate and the slaver knew it because he quickly began escalating his demands for more money, like some sort of a hostage taker and a bad action movie. And then finally, he just sold the family away. Oh, so he took all the money. Uh, Basically, this was a scam. It was a scam. And in one of the saddest accounts that I have ever told on the podcast, It would be the story of how Henry was there when his wife and children were sold. His wife and children had been caged overnight in the local jail before they had been auctioned off, and he watched them march out of town in ropes and chains. He could do nothing but stand there and watch and listen to their cries for him all night long. Oh, that must have been agony. Now, in an excerpt from his own memoir, The Narrative of the Life of Henry Box Brown, Henry described the last few moments he spent with his wife. I went with her for about four miles hand in hand, but both of our hearts were so overpowered with the feeling that we could say nothing. And when at last we were obliged to part, the look of mutual love which we exchanged was all the token in which we could give each other that we should meet again in heaven. Oh, my heart just breaks listening to that. I could not imagine suffering or being separated from someone I love, mom, dad, aunt, cousins, husband, anyone. That's just so heartbreaking. Now, after that day, Henry had pretty much 
gave up on sustaining his own life. He even entertained thoughts of suicide and other destructive behavior. But eventually his resolve changed. Bodily harm or death no longer scared him after losing Nancy and the children. So he didn't fear undertaking his remarkable escape, even if he died in that box. Oh, so that whole business gave him courage to attempt this. And if he died, he died. If he didn't, he didn't. But the broken heart encouraged him to make a move. Yep, it pushed him forward. Now, Henry, of course, did survive. And once he did reach freedom, he began to tell the world about the suffering of fellow slaves and how families and husbands and wives are broken up. So that was a story of how loss of love inspired the fearless need for freedom. After the break, I will share the story of how the love of two young slaves survived and ignited a search for each other 40 years after slavery. Well, Henry Brown's heartbreak was such a sad story. So I hope that the 40-year search you're going to tell about has a better ending. So let's take a break. And then we come when we come back, we'll find out what happened to those two young lovers. Want to learn more about systemic racism? Or maybe you want to leave us a comment, rate our show, subscribe, get lots of swag, or reach out to us on social media. Well, you can. Go to our website, www.podpage.com, Why Are They So Angry?, and connect with Courtney and me. You can even sign up to take our course, Systemic Racism, See It, Say It, Confront It. All that waiting for you at www.podpage.com, Why Are They So Angry? See you there. Okay, we're back, and I'm anxious to hear about that love interest, that love couple, and that long 40-year search. Now, you can imagine after Reconstruction, families tried to find and reconnect with each other after being separated and sold away from their loved ones. Now, a popular method of search for their families was to take out ads in the several Black-run and owned newspapers. Mothers, fathers, sisters, brothers, and especially husbands and wives would place these one ads hoping to rebuild their family. So those Black newspapers served a very important purpose. A very important purpose. And it also led to literacy for slaves because slaves who could read or write would be the ones who would write and share the ads for the illiterate slaves. Hmm. Okay. Now, one such story is the story of Levi and Aggie as recounted in their Missouri newspaper. Now, the year is 1840, and e- and Levi is owned by a man named Mr. Sparks, who then resided in Morgan County, Georgia. Aggie is also owned in Morgan County, Georgia, by a Dr. E.E. E. Jones. Now, Levi recounts that Aggie was the most beautiful girl on any of the surrounding plantations and was courted by as many men that could come around. But it was him she gave her heart to at a corn shucking frolic. They danced and played games and got to know each other the best they could. And every Saturday night, Levi tried to make sure he could get a pass so he could see Aggie until they were married in 1843. And here's a quote from Levi. And I was so happy when I when we met every Saturday night to see my young wife. 
So he was ecstatic and in love. Now, unfortunately, only after a year of marriage, Levi's owner, Mr. Sparks, moved to a different county and he took his slaves with him. So that includes Levi and that breaks up the marriage of Aggie and Levi. Levi's heart is broken and he would wait six years before finally giving up hope of reuniting with his true love, Aggie. Mm, wow. So six years, heartbroken. So what did he do after six years? Well, he stayed married, but he still longed for Aggie. And another quote is, I never loved my other wife the way I loved Aggie. So I don't know how his other wife would have felt about that, but he was <laughs> that was his first love and he still burned, burned to be with her. So actually he remarried after those six years. Yes. After those six years, he was remarried and it's documented that he was was forced to remarry okay and so that's why that romantic love was was not there but wherever where Aggie was still with the doctor she remarried and raised a large family but she is quoted as saying as well that her thoughts often drifted to her first young love and neither one knew where the other one was or what they were doing hmm Okay. Now, once slavery ended, Levi started to make inquiries, and it wasn't until 1880 that he learned that Aggie was still alive but married. Now, when Aggie's husband died, Levi made a suggestion that she would come and live with him and his current wife because he knew she had no one to care for her. Well, that would have been an interesting arrangement. That would have been a very interesting arrangement, but from my research, not not an, an awkward one. It, it did happen. But Aggie refused. She didn't want to be a part of, of whatever that, that was on her end. But two years later, Levi's wife did pass away. And after what was considered an appropriate mourning period, they found each other. It had been 40 years since they had expressed their love for one another. But Levi sent for Aggie and they were reunited. And although Levi was 70 and Aggie was 60, they felt like young lovers who had met at that corn shucking dance all those years ago. 40 years later. Oh, the flame of love. And that story was published in the Butler Weekly Times in Missouri, which was a black run newspaper. And many other stories of families and loved ones searching and finding each other are archived and also being transcribed by a project called Last Scene, Finding Family After Slavery. It's a collaboration between Villanova University's graduate history program and Mother Bethel African African Methodist Episcopal Church in Philadelphia. Oh, and we've seen situations where the um, AME church has been really integral in education, and now we see them involved in trying to, I guess, archive and record this important history. Yes, it's a history that I didn't even know about. These ads, which date from 1863 to 1902, have been published in six newspapers. Philadelphia's Christian Recorder, which was the newspaper of the AME Church that's doing the project. The New Orleans Black Republican. Nashville's The Colored Tennessean. Charleston's South Carolina Leader. 
the Freedmen's Press of Galveston, Texas, and Cincinnati's The Colored Citizen. And if you or anyone else would want to read more of these ads, you can go to the Last Seen website and even volunteer to be a transcriber. The website is informationwanted.org. Now, the tenacity that Levi showed to find his one true love is an inspiration. And his is the kind of love we expect to read about in fictional romance novels. The fact that thousands of ads were placed to search for loved ones is proof that Black love endured the test of enslavement and the desire to be married and with one's family. That was really strong. It certainly was. Now, Aunt Carol, don't forget, you promised to tell me about those marriage statistics that were a little bit suspect. (laughs) Well, Courtney, thanks for the reminder. I'd almost forgotten. Marriage in the Black African community is not a relic that some would have us believe. Now, that often cited figure of 42 percent of Black women never marrying includes all Black women. 18 years old and older. Now, including that young age of 18 is really deceptive. That's an age when we don't really expect someone to be married. So that gives an inaccurate estimate of true marriage rates. When we look at an older subset of women, the researchers that I told us, uh, told everybody about, Tolson and Marx, they found that 75% of Black women marry before they turn age 35. Also, Black women in small towns have higher marriage rates than white women in urban centers like New York and Los Angeles. Well, that's great to hear. And Carol, did you know that there's a whole day dedicated to Black love? No, I did not. Tell me about it. In 1993, A.O. Handy Kendi, the founder of the nonprofit African American Holiday Association, created Black Love Day. The holiday is based on five tenets love toward the creator, love for self, love for family, love for with love for and within the black community and love for black people. The idea is to apply these tenets throughout the entire year in one's daily life, but to pay special homage to the idea of black love on February 13th. Oh, the day before Valentine's Day. Well, that's a great resource, Courtney. I didn't know about it. And I didn't know about the African-American Holiday Association. Maybe we need to do a podcast on that. Who knows? But uh, there's another resource I want to share with uh, with you in our audience, and that is the Wedded Bliss Foundation. This was started in 2001, and it works every day to help teens and adults create healthy relationships and healthy marriages to uh, get better outcomes for their children. Now, the organization, which was uh, founded by an African-American woman, offers classes, professional training, and technical assistance. The foundation is best known for starting Black Marriage Day which is celebrated annually at locally sponsored events and hosted by faith-based and community groups on the fourth Sunday of March. Now that's another holiday that I can add to the list to give to my husband. More gifts, more love. More (laughs) gifts, more love, more love, more gifts. Now, a lot of Black couples are choosing to start their own story of Black love and family with their wedding by including many traditions from both slavery 
and African heritage to add a sense of tradition and history to their special day and is something that they can pass down to their children for them to continue when they get married. Now at my wedding we jumped a very beautifully decorated broom which was a tradition introduced in slavery but many other traditions include the tasting of the four elements which is from West Africa and the money dance from Nigeria. Now that money dance sounds pretty good. I don't know. Maybe we should have done that back in my wedding. <laughs> now, adding unique traditions during weddings like this makes the day even more memorable and something couples can look back on throughout their marriage. So thanks for telling us about those. Now, Black African-Americans have also been creating online spaces where marriage and family are honored. Lamar and Ronnie Tyler make up the husband and wife uh, duo behind Black and Married with Kids. And that's the largest independent African-American marriage and parenting site on the web. Uh, This couple said that they were fed up with the pervasive negative images of Black marriage in the media. And they started the site to combat the negativity by focusing on positive messages about marriage in the Black uh, community. And um, they basically have grown tremendously from a small personal blog to an international brand under their own Tyler New Media umbrella. And it boasts four independently produced films and a social media presence that includes over 500,000 Facebook fans. Wow. Now that's something I'm going to be checking out right after the podcast. Yes, you definitely should. It's a very good resource online for anybody, African-American or otherwise. Now, Black African-American churches are also supportive of marriages and families since many of them offer marriage and singles ministries to highlight, model, reinforce, and bolster strong relationships. I have definitely seen definitely seen many powerful marriage and singles ministries at church that highlight, prepare, and provide support to many Black married couples and singles. Black African Americans also look to positive marriages as examples and models to support their own marriages. A positive relationship model that many people cite is President Barack Obama and First Lady Michelle. A researcher found that African-Americans viewed the Obama's marriage as the ideal relationship for African-American couples. In a focus group study, participants were asked to give their opinion on how the media covered the picturesque relationship and what they thought about it. Now, one female participant said this, I think our generation is so hungry to see something like this. Here you see this black couple and they're so in love and they're still married and it's so real and not fake. Her statement suggests that black African-Americans are looking for models of genuine love and they're hoping to learn from them in order to create their own perfect relationship. The hashtag couples goals comes to mind. You can see it on every social media platform, pictures of happy couples from their wedding days, vacation days, or just living day to day as a standing testament that black love exists and matters. And you know what I like about that, even though I love seeing President Barack Obama and First Lady Michelle Obama, um, that is great. But I like that idea of looking to everyday couples as examples of strong love relationships. For example, I have only to look within our own family, such as your grandparents who were married for over 60 years, our godparents who had a loving and enviable marriage, as well as the couple um, who your uncle and I befriended on our engagement cruise. They had been married over 60 years. In fact, it was the husband, Chaplain Castillo, who performed our marriage ceremony. 
That is an awesome memory. I love being able to look around my own family and own friend circle to see married couples, both new and old, keeping Black love alive and dispelling that horrible myth that Black African-Americans are trying to avoid or do not want marriage. Well, I'm with you, Courtney, on that. I see it every day. So, Courtney, in spite of history that waged war on Black African-American love, on Black African-American marriage, and on Black African-American families, as well as to look at the dismal data, Black love has been resilient and ever-present in our community from days of enslavement until today. So true, Aunt Carol. And as we bring this episode to a close, I want to wish everyone a happy Black Love Day and a happy Valentine's Day. And if you want to catch up on podcasts or even a quick way to find us on social media, visit us on our website, which is www.podpage.com. Why are they so angry? That brings today's episode to a close. We hope you join us next time where we continue providing the answer to the question, why are they so angry? As always, we hope you learn something so you can see it, say it, and confront it.